From Fresh Air Studios in Plymouth, this is In Conversation With, the podcast from Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce. Presented by Stuart Elford. With special guests, Simon Jupp MP. I've met lots of people who on Twitter would not hesitate to libel me, but in person are nice as pie. And what does that say about them? And Stella Smith of Perks. We love the Chamber, as you well know, and we've met some fabulous individuals through the Chamber and some fabulous businesses. I like the stories and meeting people. Hello there, I'm Stuart Elford, Chief Executive of Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce, with another edition of our Chamber podcast, In Conversation With. And the first part of the podcast today is Chamber Chat. I'm joined by a prominent figure in the Southwest, and I'm delighted today to be joined by Simon Jupp, MP for East Devon. Hello, Simon. Good morning, Stuart. Yeah, morning. And where are you at the moment? Are you talking to us from London or Devon, or where are you? I'm currently in my constituency office in Exmouth, in the East Devon constituency. As soon as I got elected, I an office in Exmouth, which is the biggest town in the East Devon constituency, and that's where I'm speaking to you from now. It's currently quite foggy outside. Ah. Oh, I've just been for a walk with Charlie the Chamber Dog, and it's beautiful here in Plymouth. Always beautiful in Plymouth. Never rains, never any bad weather at all. <laughs> speaking of Plymouth, you were born here, weren't you? Are you an honorary janner? I was born in Plymouth, and yeah, I was born at Freedom Fields Hospital. Yes. Back in 1985. It wasn't my fault, it was demolished, honest. And yeah. I'm a proud Plymouthian. Yes. Well, good to hear. I remember Freedom Fields Hospital well. Ward 5 was the children's ward. They had my appendix out there. I had such a good time, I didn't want to go. I loved it. Anyway, <laughs> there we are. But Plymouth, very much a part of your life, because you started, did you not, in broadcasting at Plymouth Sound Radio? Yes. So earlier in my career, before I went into politics, I was a radio presenter. And one of the stations I worked at was Plymouth Sound, which broadcast to the city for decades. It was one of the first commercial radio stations in the country. It had an amazing listenership. Most of the city listened and most people in the city knew who the presenters were as well. And I was there for a time in the early part of my radio career and I loved it. It was a fantastic place to work and it really celebrated the city that I know and love. And the building was amazing as well. It's no longer obviously a radio station there. It was quite an old-fashioned building. I remember it. Apparently it was haunted. Was it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, Delahaye Avenue. I used to live in Whittington Street just around the corner and I remember going there. You had characters like Louise Churchill was there, wasn't she? Do you remember her? Yes, that was before my time in terms of I didn't get to work with her. I got to work with some really fantastic people who loved local radio and having actually fun on the radio as well as being serious too. So it was just great. I loved it. And I got to return to Plymouth later in my career to launch Radio Plymouth, which sadly, of course, closed last year. Yes, That was a highlight of my career because Radio Plymouth was one of the last radio stations to be licensed by Ofcom, commercial radio stations, that is. And to return to launch that station in my home city was something I will forever cherish. Yeah. And well, Plymouth's got a sort of proud community, hasn't it? And I think I can understand why local radio was so popular here. Is that where you met the terrible Paul Philpot? And I can say that because we're in his studio here at Fresh Air Studios. (laughs) That is where I met Paul. He was Black Thunder Paul back then. Black Thunder? Yeah. So if you were part of the Black Thunder thing, which was like, how can I best explain this without it sounding absolutely crazy? If you were part of the promotion team, you were known as a Black Thunder person. So you had to wear like a special outfit it makes it sound really weird actually you say it out loud and Paul was part of that team but also like guest on the breakfast show a lot it was great fun as I say it was a brilliant place to work my one regret working at Plymouth Sam was I discovered where the swim
sweets were kept in the promotional sweets. <laughs> and I used to keep dipping into them every now and then. I used to be told off by Paul and loads of other people at the station for nicking <laughs> nicking the sweets from the from the sweetie car. The marketing sweets, yes. Yes. Yes, I did work at a firm where the lady in charge of all the marketing items wouldn't give them out to anyone at all. Really? And I was kind of like, well, isn't the point of marketing items that they're supposed to be out there? But we weren't allowed to give away any pens. It was just quality control in my case. Well, in the military, there's the expression, apparently, you know, the guys in stores, they say stores are for storing things. If they were for issuing things, they'd be called issues. And so that's why you can't apparently get anything out of a store in the military. Anyway, just moving on slightly to sort of your political career, are you still a member of the Transport Select Committee? Is that right? Yes, I'm a member of the Transport Select Committee and now the Digital Culture Media and Sports Select Committee as well. So I now sit on two select committees. I was elected by my colleagues to sit on both those committees. They trusted me to do that, which is fantastic and a great honour. Because obviously previously working in radio as both a presenter and journalist it is suitable for the Digital Culture and Media and Sports Select Committee. But when it comes to transport, clearly the South West needs better transport connections. And I thought it was really important for me to highlight that as a parliamentarian. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that. I mean, as a business representative organisation and chairing British Chambers of Commerce South West, clearly we have some issues, some challenges to overcome with our geography and where the transport goes. So what are your big asks? What are you hoping to achieve for the South West? Well, in my maiden speech, I mentioned how important it was to get Dawlish right. It would have never been acceptable anywhere else in the country, and it certainly wasn't acceptable in the southwest, that when our train line fell into the sea all those years ago, that we were cut off for quite some time. We need to have a more resilient railway, and I'm glad that multi-million pounds are being spent to make it more resilient and improve it, and that's going really, really well. But we can't be placed in that position again. So there are interventions we need to do to improve things. Reopening the Oakhampton railway line, which happened Mm. a few months ago, is a great step, because we can't talk about improving and getting people on public transport transport without giving them the actual option to use public transport. That helps. (laughs) Yeah, of course. So rural bus networks have been decimated over the last couple of years because arguably there's no point having buses going around with no one on them. And certain times of the day, there Mm. were a few people on some rural services, but they were busy at other times. So it's right to target transport for where it's actually needed at the right times. But we also need to make sure people have the confidence to get out of their cars. If you're going to work in Plymouth, and you're going to work in Exeter, is there a public transport alternative to the car? And so it's looking at that. But we know, don't we, that back in the 60s, our public transport network was decimated by the beaching cuts. Mm. And the train lines into North Devon, many of the branch lines into East Devon were cut and removed and that will forever live as a huge mistake for the Southwest, in my view, because of the changes we've seen to communities since. I'm very lucky. I've got a branch line in my patch. The Avocet line, which goes between Exmouth and Exeter, is the busiest branch line in the Southwest. Oh, right. And it's a fantastic service. And people need to use it more because obviously, as we emerge from a pandemic, people need to get back on public transport, trust that it's a safe place to be. Yeah. But when it comes to transport investment generally, you know, the other thing I've been pushing for is the dueling of the A303. Mm. Cannot have a major artery road into the southwest that looks like it could be a residential street in terms of the size of the actual road and the layout of it. It's very lovely that tourists and many people stop to look at Stonehenge. I really wish they wouldn't because (laughs) I get to see Stonehenge far too much, far too often. Yes, And so we need to solve that problem. I know that there's currently a high court injunction on trying to sort out the Stonehenge tunnel. I hope we can get through that. But it's not good for our economy. In Devon, Cornwall, Dorset, Somerset, that we have this road that is just not fit for purpose in 2022. So there's work to be done. So for me, it's getting people back on public transport. Only then can we push for more and more services and better services. 
getting the A303 sorted and making sure our roads budgets are good enough for Devon so that when we have roads that are deteriorating, they are being sorted so that people aren't avoiding potholes and all that kind of stuff. So I look at all this as a member of Parliament for East Devon, which is quite a big patch, and try my best to highlight those issues as and when they occur. Yeah, I mean, having come back from my brothers in Winchester at Christmas and spent 25 minutes to do the two miles from the roundabout before Stonehenge to Stonehenge, I'm fully supportive of that. But I'd also call for better infrastructure the further southwest we go. We do tend to get cut off. And certainly my members will tell me that government referring to Swindon as the southwest upsets them because they don't see, you know, if you're in Cornwall and someone says the Swindon's in the southwest, you think, well, you really don't understand the geography of our region because we've got a huge geographic region and it's really hard to cover all that and to be productive and effective if we don't have a good transport system. So it's great to know that you're kind of on it there. And I was going to ask you, I suppose this links on in a way in that we've got HS2, which is going up through the spine of the country, but we don't have our own HS2 down here. And what we don't have is a powerhouse. We've been calling for recognition of the Great Southwest, for that regional powerhouse to be recognised, especially around the blue-green economy, which we are world leaders in, without a doubt. We are world leaders in marine autonomy, in green energy, and so forth. Where do you think that's going? I know the white papers, devolution white papers, been pushed down the line again, but what do you expect to come out of it? Do you think we will be recognised as a powerhouse? Do you think we will get that sort of investment we deserve? I go along to those Great Southwest meetings, people who are interested in this. I think it's really good to see that Cornwall, Devon, Dorset and Somerset joining together. That is the Southwest. Swindon yeah. is not the Southwest to me either. So having those counties working together is really, really important. But what is not clear, I think, sometimes from that group and others in the Southwest is actually what we want. So one of the key asks from the Great Southwest has been the money to set up a secretariat. That is not ambitious enough. Actually, it needs to be an avenue and a vehicle to call for certain projects or investment or devolution of powers. Mm. So that's what it needs to be, rather than saying, oh, the first thing we're going to do is set up a nice shiny office somewhere. Yeah, I agree. That is not ambitious enough. We need to actually say, well, you know, actually the major interventions we need, we need better skills funding. East Devon's the least productive district in the county. That yeah. needs to be addressed. We need to make sure that we have the right infrastructure in place. We have a proper plan for housing and all those things. And one of the things we're not good at in the Southwest is always working together as closely as we could. So the Great Southwest is a good thing. It's got all the people in the same room, but it hasn't managed to get that traction needed because if your first obstacle is give us some money, set up a nice office, the government isn't going to think, well, you know, I need to see what you're going to do with it next. Yes. I want to see what your actual priorities are. There was a brilliant prospectus that the Great Southwest put together, but I would say a top five things need to be decided on that we need to have as an intervention that all MPs can back all councils can back chambers of commerce, business leaders, local enterprise partnership, and then we might get somewhere. Until then, if parliamentarians, if councils and councillors, if the LEP and other teams don't work together and start calling for their own individual projects, we aren't going to get anything. No, that's right. And we have suffered in the Southwest with parochialism where people don't see themselves as being collaborative across the Southwest individual towns or cities or counties have been very much insular and we're working very hard as British Chambers of Commerce Southwest to get over that and to join this up and say come on guys what are our big asks we know what our strengths are they're around the blue green economy we know there is issues over skills so what do we need to do to grow that and so we'll work with you to develop those asks I completely agree every region will be asking for more money and every 
region will say, I want better railways, airports, better roads. That's fine, but why? What are they going to get back? What's the business case? And I'm glad you said collaborative, because I was going to ask you about this. Politics has become very adversarial, hasn't it? Well, probably always has been, but very confrontational. That It doesn't seem that parties can work together very well, which when we look from the private sector, we look and we think, well, just work together. When things are done together, amazing things happen. But it seems that politicians have to almost by default take a diametrically opposed view to the personal opposite and disagree with everything they say and make personal attacks. How do you work around that? Because I find that very difficult. I like to collaborate and work with and be better together. I'll give you the example of one of my local councils. In Devon, of course, we have a rather complex local government structure where we have, in my area, we've got East Devon District Council, we've got Exeter City Council, and we've got Devon County Council. Now, I have regular catch-ups and conversations with the leader of Exeter City Council. Exeter is run by Labour, but it doesn't matter because some of the local projects, interventions that are needed, it doesn't matter which party you represent or you support or whatever your view might be. This is local stuff that matters to local people. If your bins aren't collected on time, it's not a party political matter. It's something that matters to local people. So actually, I don't work like that. Of course, there are politicians across the county and the country who will have a pop at the Conservatives and vice versa. That's a given. But when it comes to local issues, Mm. it's not particularly political if you want to park and ride. It's not particularly political if you want to solve a congestion problem in a part of the city. You know, you have to discuss it with your local residents and come to a conclusion. Mm. So I think there's a greater need to work together with people from all different political parties. But of course, not everyone wants to do that. And what I find a little bit tiresome in politics, actually, is people who masquerade, for example, as independent and just decide to target conservatives and say the conservatives are bad. If you're truly an independent thinker, it doesn't matter what party the other person's in, you work with them and you celebrate their success and you point out when things don't go well. So it's about working together, having a really good working relationship. And I can say that I have that with all of the leaders that I work with locally. Yeah, well, that's good to hear. And as I said to you before we started, the Chamber's apolitical. We work with everybody and anybody. As long as it's doing good for business, we're behind them. Still to come... Stella Smith of Perks. I mean, it's a silly environment. People would shout and scream and be awful to each other and then five minutes later be best pals and in the pub doing client lunches. Follow the Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce on Twitter at Chamber underscore Devon and search for us on LinkedIn. Make sure you don't miss out on future episodes. Hit subscribe now. It's funny you should say about people taking a pop at the Conservatives because, you know, there is that expression, opposition is the easiest job in the world because you just stand at the sidelines saying things. You don't actually have to do and prove. So I get that it's a very easy thing to do. But at the moment, the Conservatives are going through a really difficult time. The time we record this, and I should say, because this could go out in weeks, this is the time where I think yesterday or the day before the Prime Minister admitted he had been in one of these Downing Street parties in the back garden. So I suppose my question is, how do you feel feel about when things like this happen it must frustrate you terribly when you're trying to do locally good things and yet things are perhaps happening in london that you i suppose what i'm saying is it's a bit of an own goal isn't it it's immensely frustrating so earlier on this week it was announced that Exmouth, the largest town in the east devon patch 
is getting a brand new police station. The current police station, if you've ever seen it, is horrible. It is a gross building from the 1960s, 1970s that is largely empty and is just an eyesore for the entire town. And it's not open to the public. So Exmouth is getting a brand new police station. But, you know, the news coverage of that was overshadowed completely by stuff going on in Westminster. Mm. And that's really annoying because, you know, I've been working on this with our police and crime commissioner for years and we've managed to get it over the line. You know, it's now going to be designed and built the next couple of years, replacing the old police station for a brand new one. Fantastic for the local police force that have to work in currently what I consider to be rather low standard of building. And it was completely overshadowed. So it's immensely frustrating because MPs don't just sit there on the green benches and go, oh, yes, we're, 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 and nod around. We actually have to do a great deal of work. We have constituency surgeries. We deal with a whole host of different local issues that people come to us with and we're there to champion causes to get involved in local issues and solve things and it's immensely frustrating when that work is undermined and the behavior of other people does also i understand reflect on me and it's not great for trust in politicians which i know is already low yeah so i'm not particularly happy about what's happening at the moment and you know i've received quite a lot of angry emails and conversations about it oh but it's a particularly difficult thing i guess you have to have very thick skin don't you as a politician because there's always people who are going to have a pop at you whatever you do or say yeah you do have to have a thick skin as a politician and i've certainly built on that since becoming elected because i was only selected for the seat five weeks before the general election so it all happened rather quickly for me mm. so you know from five weeks of selection to then being elected and the obviously election campaign in the meantime it did demonstrate to me just how much hatred that politicians do Receive that I haven't really seen firsthand before. But one thing I would say is behind every politician is a team of people. Mm. In my case, a small team based in both London and Devon. You have to read these emails. Mm. And some of the emails that I've received, one of which had to be investigated by the police, it's just beneath contempt that someone would write something like that and think they could get away with it or think it's reasonable to email a human being some of the emails that I received. So although you've got to have a thick skin, you've got to draw a line somewhere. And sometimes I've drawn a line and I've responded to that person saying, you know, do you really think that's acceptable? Mm. You know, it doesn't matter if you don't support my political party or you don't want me as your MP. That's not right. You cannot say that to someone. And once or twice, I've had apologies from people, which has been really nice. But one thing I will say is, and it's a common thing really, is people are much braver behind a keyboard than they are in person. Of course they are. Keyboard warriors. I hate them. I've met lots of people who on Twitter would not hesitate to libel me, but in person, a nice as pie. Yeah, yeah. And what does that say about them? Yeah, oh, cowards. Yeah, I absolutely hate it. It was funny you should mention Exmouth Police Station. So I left the police in 2003, and Exmouth Police Station was a dump then, so it must yeah. be terrible now. But I met people who behaved towards you when you're a police officer in uniform very different to how they behave elsewhere. And I guess, I mean, I've never liked bullies. I always stand up to bullies. But from your point of view, do you have to be... I guess, slightly schizophrenic as a politician, because I know politicians of all parties who, when I meet them at a dinner or a function or I'm talking to them on Twitter or they come around for a cup of coffee, I get on like a house on fire, lovely, all of them, you know, of every shade and type. And yet when I see what some of them write in in social media and, and other things, I think that's pretty brutal. Is that necessary? So do you have to have a sort of work persona and a personal persona? Do you have to switch off 
being a politician when you go home at night. It's not good to be two-faced, is it? No. And I believe that I am who I am on social media. I write my own social media posts mm. and I am who I am when you meet me. Mm. And I don't think I'm any different. And, you know, people can feel free to disagree with that. But I am the same person that, you know, went to a normal school, didn't go to university, found my own path in life. I don't believe in being nasty to people, but I don't mind pointing out when I think something is wrong. Mm. So, you know, I've used social media to criticize local policy making from time to time, because it's the right thing to do. If you're going to whack up parking charges in East Devon, and think you're going to get away with the MP not saying anything, then you're wrong. Mm. But it's not personal. It's about the policy. Yeah. And in politics, you have to base your criticism on the policy, not mm. person, in my view. But you're right. There are some politicians who are nice as pie to me in and around Parliament, and then write some really quite ridiculous things on social media around the party that I represent. Mm. And sometimes you just think, was that really necessary? Yeah. Is that really the grown-up way to work? And does that really help you in any way, shape or form? It's funny you mention that. I think that's the frustration I feel from people with politics and some politicians is it doesn't seem very grown up. It seems quite childish at times because there are a lot of things you think, well, I can understand you may disagree with that person, but do we really need those personal attacks? Is that helpful? Are we working towards an answer? And funny enough, we touched on you're not two-faced, you're the person you are in politics as you are at home, but I don't know anything about your home. I looked you up. You have almost nothing about your personal life around, and I'm prying, but does that mean you've done very well as a politician to avoid any scandal? Or tell us about you. Who are you, Simon? Who is Simon Jupp? What do you do? Who do you live with? Where do you go? Tell us about you. So I do a job. I'm a politician. I represent Mm. an area, but I'm also a private citizen as well. Mm. And I treasure my privacy greatly because it is really important to me. But people know that I live in Sidmouth. Mm -hmm. I actually managed to buy my first house last year. No, was it last year? Year before last now, which was a major milestone for me. There's things that need doing to it. (laughs) <laughs> that I haven't quite got around to. I'm not very good at DIY. That information no, is obvious to anyone that knows me. But I live in Sidmouth and I'm from Devon, as you've said. I'm from Plymouth. But I don't think that people need to know the insides and outsides of everyone's personal life mm. in order for me to be effective as a politician. People mm. are perfectly able to ask me anything, but the information I provide is based on how much I know that person as well. Yeah. So, you know, everyone's entitled to a private life yeah. and that's really important to me. And actually my family as well, is wow. we're born and bred Devonians and it's really, really important, I think, to respect their privacy too. Yeah, I get it. I think it's one of the things, to be honest, that would put me off being a politician is I wouldn't want to expose my friends and family to the sort of trouble, I suppose, that comes with it. But you're relatively, well, you are young for a politician. You know, Are you in it for the long haul? Is it something you want to do for a long time? Have you got plans and ambitions? What would you want to achieve as a politician going forwards? It's really early days to say what I would like to do, because in politics, it can take you in different directions. So I've gone down the scrutiny hole. So as a former journalist, I love asking questions. And that's why I'm on two select committees. So I like asking government ministers questions and saying, well, you're doing that, but that doesn't work because of this. Or saying, that's a really good idea, but you could tweak it to say this, mm. for example. So I've gone down the scrutiny role rather than seeking a ministerial, even the bottom rung of the ladder. Yeah. So I've done it slightly differently. As to being in the long haul, that is very much up to the people I represent. Yeah. And if they decide that actually they don't want me anymore, then that's the end of my journey. Mm. I hope they don't. I hope they can see that I work really hard on their behalf. Mm. But ultimately, it's up to the people whether I will be in this job for many years to come. I sincerely hope that I will be able to repay the trust that they have placed in me and re-elect me when the next general election comes, whenever that might be. 
But, you know, nothing is a given. And equally, in politics, I think it's folly to have like a set plan, because all sorts of things could happen. Mm. And one of the things I'm really keen to get right is I want to make sure that people know me as a connected constituency MP, Mm. someone who actually understands locally that Vicarage Road in Sidmouth is going to be resurfaced in a couple of weeks' time. Mm. And that, you know, we have a number of community hospital beds, you know, Exmouth and Sidmouth Hospital that are really important and are still treating people. What's going on at the Nightingale Hospital? You know, so if they contact me on email or come up to me in the street, I can at least answer some of their questions. Not everything, obviously, mm. but that's really important to me first. Get the local stuff first, mm. prove yourself, and other things may follow in the future. But it's never a given because mm. politics is a very fluid profession your last couple of answers have been very good answers but also very good politician answers <laughs> even if you have got a plan you're not going to tell me <laughs> which is great and i understand it if i had a plan <laughs> i would probably want to be clear about it but i think genuinely yeah. i think it's unwise to have something you know as a solid aim i'm really enjoying the roles i've got on select committees and i've just become the chair of the all-party parliamentary group for tourism and hospitality ah excellent because there's not beat around the bush when you look at local employment in east devon and much of the southwest what is crucial is the hospitality industry and what's been hit for six in the last two years it's the hospitality industry so our pubs our restaurants and other you know places you can go to socialize and meet people and that's been necessary to a point but now it's time to move on and rebuild that industry and make sure that you know we've seen rural pubs close at a rate of knots in the last couple of years that has to stop because the centre of a village or a town is a pub, in my mm. view, because it's a place for people to meet and socialise, and it's a great British tradition. Mm. And that opens up discussions with all sorts of parliamentarians from all shapes and different parties. Yes. And it's fascinating. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm glad you're doing that, because it's a really key part of the Southwest and the business economy. I'm glad that you're representing at that level. And maybe that's one of the things the Southwest has missed, is other areas have got very high-profile politicians in their area, and we haven't really. I suppose Johnny Mercer arguably became one of the most high profile because of a ministerial role but we haven't had that for a while and even if you don't have it as a plan it would be great if we got some sort of ministerial representation down here well you know if you think about it so you've got george eustace over the border in cornwall who's the environment secretary Mm. Uh, we've got another environment minister rebecca powell in somerset the immigration minister for the country is the mp for torbay Mm. and he's also from plymouth by the Mm. way so we do quite well former attorney general is jeffrey cox Mm. there are people who have had some fantastic jobs former leader of the house of commons is mel stride the mp for central devon and so we've had some really really good roles actually yeah former secretary of state for dcms i believe is ben bradshaw right the labor mp for exeter so cross party we've actually done all right but you know never say never but also politics is very very fluid and you've got to get the local stuff right first yeah oh well i'm glad you see that because that's the other problem i suppose you can have a very high profile minister but if they're never here and don't understand the local issues that doesn't help either i guess well it's pointless yeah what do you love most about our region or our county devon and what do you hope for it? What would your big ask be? The main reason I love Devon, I love our county and our region is it is not only beautiful, but also the people are incredibly kind and conscientious. And, you know, we've seen the last two years, Mm. the amount of support the local communities came together to offer others within their same street or neighbourhood through the pandemic was truly heartening. Speaking to those local volunteer groups, I helped out myself in Sidmouth where I live, was incredible. And we don't get that everywhere in the country because we are still a close-knit community. Even Mm. if you're in a city or in Exeter, we still 
still have a close community feel for mm. an awful lot of people. That's something that's really important. And I think one of my main asks is that we need to recognise the Southwest better in government. Mm. So what is the Southwest? So the areas that we discussed earlier in this conversation about it being, in my view, Devon, Cornwall, Somerset and Dorset, but also work together an awful lot better as parliamentarians, council leaders, councillors, the LEP, chambers of commerce, to put together one vision for our region. Because if we don't do that, we're going to be left behind. Mm. So I think it's about working together, but also agreeing when we do work together, what are the interventions we need? Do we need better skills funding? The answer, by the way, is yes. Yes. (laughs) Do we need more transport funding? The answer is yes. It's not always money. Sometimes it can be extra powers. Mm. And there's obviously ongoing discussion within local government at the moment about devolution. And Mm. I urge local leaders to work together to find the right solution because we need to get this right. And without that, the Southwest often feels neglected. We've not done badly in recent years when it comes to major spending on Dawlish that was necessary, but also the A303 when that finally happens. Now, you know, that's over £2 billion worth of spending. It's not peanuts, mm. but there is more to be done. But we have to do that by working together with one voice. Mm. If we don't, we will fail. Yeah, I 100% agree. And I'll help however I can in my capacity to do that. And I hope you'll continue to talk to the business community, listen to us, you know, big, big part of the economy. Small businesses, particularly what drive the regional economy. So thank you for taking the time to talk to us. It's been an absolute pleasure. I hope we'll see you again. Really appreciate you taking time out from your busy schedule. And thank you very much, Simon Jot. Pleasure. Thanks very much for inviting me. Now, Chambermaid, introducing business owners from across the Southwest. Hello there and welcome back to the second half of our In Conversation With podcast. This is Chambermaid where we speak to various members about their businesses, find out a bit about the business and more about them as people. And I'm delighted today to be joined by Stella Smith of Perks. And Perks are in fact a member of the Devon and Plymouth Chamber but based in London and working nationally. And Stella is joining me via Zoom now. Come in Stella. Hello, good afternoon, Stuart. Hi, thanks for joining us. I just want to let the listeners know a little bit before we start. So you founded a fintech startup called Perks in 2018, which is an employee benefits sort of package, which you'll no doubt tell us more about in a minute. But you've got a background in investments, technology, financial markets. You sit on a number of boards, the Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights Board and the AWIN Project and Sport Media Ventures. So I'm going to ask you about some of these in a bit. But I suppose the opening question is, looking at all that, do you ever sleep? Yes, but I tend to stay busy from when I wake up until I go to bed. But I have a four-year-old, so I think you can add all of those things up and then add in the four-year-old, and I reckon the four-year-old keeps me more busy than that long list of stuff. I'll bet. So what drives you to do all this? I think I was born with a brain that likes to solve. I don't know. I mean, is it nurture or is it nature? Right. It's definitely something that I feel in my bones, and I think I enjoy the opportunity to kind of do stuff. And actually, that's probably just a fib. I can't help (laughs) is the honest answer. Can I help yourself? No, I think if someone puts something in front of you and it looks interesting, it's very hard to not have a cup of tea, have a look at it and have a go, really. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I can see that with what you've done. You're a bit of a problem solver. So tell us about Perks. What is this fintech stuff? Is this your main job, by the way? Would you say Perks is your main role? Yeah, absolutely. So the other roles are all non-exec. And Perks actually was just a silly idea in my head back in 2018. And it came from the fact I've worked for large organisations historically in my financial services career. And I had a number of small businesses privately and the kind of benefits that I was given as an investment banker 
I couldn't source for my team at a price that was affordable for the kind of size of organisations I have myself. So I basically looked to find it, couldn't find it and built it. And I really just built it for 64 self-employed massage therapists and 100 people in the FS firm I worked in at the time. (laughs) Then we kind of turned the thing on and we realised, hey, there's five to seven million people, I think it was pre-COVID, who are kind of self-employed or contractors or gig economy workers. And there's, I think there were around 15 million employed in the SME sector prior to COVID. So all of those people, it's estimated that 75% of them don't have the stuff that Perks provides. And and all it is, is all the benefits you get if you worked in a big organisation. So we sold for wellbeing, you know, doctor, counsellor, gym membership, discounts, all the kind of benefits and perks that support wellbeing that you don't necessarily access in a small business. Yeah, and of course, the Chamber itself has signed up to it for its own employees, which is great. And we are promoting it to our members because we think it's a fantastic member benefit package. But it's more than that, really, isn't it? So what, what makes it unique? Because there are various sort of member benefit packages. Probably if I start from the beginning is my background isn't wellbeing. I think I have a good day if I've done my fizzy vitamin C and my fizzy vitamin our FD is a champion kickboxer so there's two very different degrees of well-being so if Perks is service to try and solve well-being well then how the heck do we do that for so many different people and in every business you're going to have people of different ages people living in different places people with different cultures and values Mm. so how on earth do you get kind of one product that solves it for everyone so because I didn't know what I was doing I looked it up in the dictionary which is the state of being happy healthy or comfortable so what we do at Perks is we look for anything that's going to make someone more happy someone more healthy and someone more comfortable and how that embodies itself is we have five channels so you know your physical health channel your mental health channel social interaction your financial well-being reward and recognition and learning in its widest sense if you go to the theatre you learn Mm. culturally and we pull together about 41 benefits and services underneath that and as you say, some of them are very meaningful. You know, I hurt my back on my chair, actually. And the digital physio for me is super. And I have a four-year-old. So I unfortunately have used the telephone GP at least 13 times. <laughs> yes, I'll bet. So for my £4.50, and I think you know, we're good at technology. So mm. we use technology to do the heavy lifting, which means I can make it affordable for people. And I guess our wish is that we can kind of positively impact people and actually make a difference whether that's just we make someone smile for four pounds 50 a month because it's something little and nice or whether we can make a meaningful difference to someone's family from the well-being perspective and Mm. I think we're doing that now two years ago we did it for a very limited number and now that's not the case and I've got kind of big ambition that we can get it to as many people across the globe as possible well that's great I mean it's become it was anyway health and well-being was becoming more prevalent but the last couple of years with the pandemic and everything has become super prevalent hasn't it that everyone really realizes how important mental health is how well-being is about your physical health about how difficult it is to access medical services and i guess this solves a lot of that problem as well as providing a benefit that retains staff because at the moment nobody can get the right staff so you've got to look after your staff definitely and look we've had lots of anecdotal stuff one recruitment firm actually that signed up to perks for their contractors that they deploy out to other organizations they hadn't actually bought their memberships yet but they put it out on one of the job specs and they won a candidate off a competitor by having perks on there because they were in essence all things equal you know pay equal and everything else and then they had this kind of extra package so first of all I think those kind of things are more important going forward so you said a couple of things there I think if you're not well then you kind of are not at all and I think that's my lesson from the pandemic is it's almost the first thing when you wake up in the morning is your health and your well-being because otherwise how do you function and then everything comes out from there so you know it, it is very important and I think using it to attract and retain staff so not just to attract people in and I would go for an even 
more human thing than that. You know, it's about looking after people. The reason that I built perks for my teams was because I wanted to take care of them as a business owner, because ultimately they made my business. Without those people, I wouldn't have had a business. Mm. If you're an employer, there's another angle, which is, you know, if you have a mental health issue in your team, how do you deal with it? Have you got the infrastructure and support? Mm. And I think it doesn't just look after the person who's got the end usage. It also helps a business lay down the kind of basic infrastructure of having some support and some help around some circumstances that can be difficult to manage. Yeah. Oh, well, I think you've found a fantastic thing and I wish you every success. I've got to ask you, you said you're not really into the physical fitness thing, but and this translates very badly on an audio podcast, but I notice you've got a punch bag behind you in your office. Is this to get rid of the stress once you've spoken to Chopsy chief executives from Chambers and things? We love the Chamber, as you well know, and we've met some fabulous individuals through the Chamber and some fabulous businesses. You know, I like the story and meeting people. The reason for the punch bag is once upon a time, I was very physically fit, Stuart. So whilst I'm not particularly large right now, I did eat lots of chocolate over the pandemic and not move as much as I should in my chair, which obviously I take my perks lessons and try and do better each day. But Mm. the punch bag was once upon a time when I was on a trading floor, I did do boxing. And I actually used to get up at five o'clock in the morning and go running in the park and then go to a gym called The Ring in South London, just on the other side of the river. At that time, there was only about four women that were there and I kind of fancied myself as a bit of a Rocky. There's some funny stories of me dressing up in a dressing gown and singing the Rocky theme tune with my trainer in the morning. (laughs) Not the most clever person in the world. (laughs) So that's there. In essence, I look at it every day and think I should be boxing that for at least 10 minutes. What ends up happening is my four-year-old ends up pinning it because it's one of those on a spring and whacking me with it. Yeah, And that's about as much exercise. But no, I do like boxing. If I was to do two sports, it would be swimming and boxing. Really? But yeah, I like swimming as well. And you're one of these larks that gets up at the crack of dawn. I've gone right off you. No, I mean, I was. Ah. And then I got a bit older. And as you get older, I thought you were supposed to get up earlier. Mm. Actually, what's happened to me is I've become lazier. And, you know, I've probably cherished those lay-ins in bed in the cosy duvet more often than not. Well, I wouldn't describe from your bio that you are lazy in any way, shape or form. But I get what you mean. Yeah. I think there's only one five o'clock in the day. And that's when you hear a sort of sound or a popping sound as the court comes out. If you'd like to feature on a future episode of In Conversation With, send an email to info at freshairstudios.com. I've got to say, you mentioned your background in the financial services industry and trading floor and everything. And please, at the risk of upsetting any of my members who are in that industry, you seem too fun to be in that sort of world. I mean, surely. I mean, I think of people in that world as sort of grey suited and very dull people. Sorry members who are in that world and i have a private banking background as well so i would suggest that that is to put it nicely for those other members of the members it's far more corporate feeling or conservative feeling banking was back in my day remember i'm older now so oh ancient yes well this is why I'm, if it's audio that's great because then i don't have to show my wrinkles off but actually i think a financial markets floor is probably one of the most fun places in the world to be on and i'm saying a long time ago now it's slightly different but when you have a kit and a setup naturally you have your six or nine screens around you but in the olden days you used to have two telephones that you'd have one on either side of your screen and they had kind of light switches on each one and you'd have something called a squawk box in the middle of your desk so I did FX foreign exchange and and money markets but on the foreign exchange desk you know you'd have two phones going and you'd have nine screens and you'd have to shout on a microphone I mean Very, very fast paced and a very interesting culture and environment to work in, you Mm. know, 
noisy, not as noisy as what you look at on the telly from way back when, when there was open outcry mm. and everything else. But certainly there's a piece around it that gives you a kind of feeling in your stomach. You know, even now when I walk into the financial markets part of a bank and I walk and I still get that feeling, you know. I mean, it's a silly environment. People would shout and scream and be awful to each other and then five minutes later be best pals and in the pub doing client lunches, you know. I mean, it genuinely was, a, I think, quite a unique environment to operate in. And, of course, doing big business and making things happen that impact lots of people. So, yeah, yeah very interesting. Well, my own treasurer tells me, as he says every time we get to this part in the meeting, he says, and remember, finance can be fun. And it can be. I'm sorry to all my members. You're right. And I can see that you love the sort of adrenaline of that life and the adrenaline of running businesses and getting hugely involved. But I understand you relax from all this by traveling. You love travel when we're allowed. So apart from Devon, of course, what is your favorite place in the world? Well, I love travel. So my favorite place in the world to relax would be the Maldives because it feels like you're in a one of those old Technicolor movies. I'm very lucky. I've traveled a lot from my bucket travel in my late teens through to, you know, slightly more luxurious travel when I was older. But the Maldives is literally like walking into a little piece of heaven. You know, Mm. I've been to kind of place in uh, the Grenadines in the Caribbean that where they filmed Pirates of the Caribbean and it's beautiful. And there's little bits and pockets where you're just like, wow, this is the most amazing thing I've seen. But the Maldives is literally everything you look at. Everything is perfection. I wasn't expecting to like the Maldives. I thought I'd be bored because I'm not particularly just a beach person. Mm. And it was the first place I cried when I left because I didn't want to leave. So, um, yeah. But my brother lives in Thailand and we have a house down there. You know, I mean, I like markets and history. I like architecture. So, you know, a real mix. Mm. My favourite place on earth is probably Covent Garden. That's where you live, isn't it? It always makes me happy. Every day I think I'm just so lucky to live here. Mm. That was kind of a thing of when I was a kid that never really felt possible so I still have to pinch myself every day that I'm lucky enough to kind of call Covent Garden home and have them for two decades now and I know all the people there's love it's busy you can never be miserable so yeah maybe Covent Garden (laughs) if you took that away I would be very sad yeah I get it it's not as lovely as Devon but I'll give you that Devon's beautiful some of my family are Cornish so I've spent a lot of time in Cornwall and I've spent a lot of time my grandmother lived in Plymouth she lived in a little place called Who just opposite where you get a little boat across yes and so I spent you know every Christmas and New Year in Plymouth and I love that little boat and uh, she's no longer here sadly but we've still got a lot of friends and family all around Plymouth and Devon and of course into Cornwall and this is recorded so I just must say you know thank you for inviting me to the Maldives I'd love to come yeah, I mean, sure, that was, you did say that, oh, didn't you? welcome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I did indeed. We'll be out there on our little kayaks and eating the nice food and looking at that beautiful sunsets and stuff. Well, I love kayaking in Plymouth, but I have to say the Maldives sounds slightly better. <laughs> I was lucky enough to go to the Bahamas a couple of years ago and absolutely loved it. So I can imagine. And when I lost my dear late mum three years ago, nearly now, I've actually just snuffled a little bit of money away and always said that's the Maldives money. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, what's your favourite place in the world? Devon and Plymouth, obviously, because... I am the chief executive of that chamber. I genuinely, like you, I love where I live. I feel privileged. You know, I'm in Fresh Air Studios here in Plymouth. I look out the window, we are looking at the sea. You know, you're looking at beautiful boats. We're looking at Royal William Yard. So as a place to live, definitely. To visit, the only place like you that I've left with a tear in my eye was actually New Zealand. I loved the people. I loved the variety from the top of New Zealand to the bottom. You've got from tropical beaches down to glaciers. They've got deserts. They've got everything in New Zealand. It's sparsely populated. 
everyone there was lovely. In three weeks there, I didn't meet a single person I didn't like. They all wanted you to have a good time and made sure that you enjoyed your time there. In three weeks, I feel like I only touched the surface. You know, I still didn't do Rotorua. I didn't do the Fox Glacier. And yet I did a lot. You know, I didn't do 90 Mile Beach. So I could still go back there. Yeah, it's beautiful. Love New Zealand. Yeah, I love it. My daughter is half New Zealand and obviously half British with me. Oh, so you've got an easy in there. I've got an easy in there. Well, she has both passports. I am very... Very jealous. I don't get one. I'm no longer with my ex-partner, so but the baby can go anytime she wants to New Zealand. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm jealous of her. I think that's fantastic. I just want to touch on a couple of things from your other mentions on your bio I've read. I did want to ask about the Robert F. Kennedy human rights thing. I don't know about that. And the Arwen Project, which I know nothing about. So what are they all about? They're, I guess, both charities. So I sit on as a trustee on the boards of both those organisations. And I think I came across them more by chance rather than looking for it. So Owen Project is a democratic school in Wales and I help out as a treasurer there. Amazing story. And the Bobby Kennedy Human Rights Organisation, amazing organisation, amazing family and an amazing thing they do. So it's all about sort of bringing human rights into the everyday and it focuses on education and supporting through legal. And in the UK, there's a schools project. So it's about teaching about human rights into schools. And there was a festival in Manchester back in the year. I think I've learned a huge amount. So, you know, obviously I give my time, but in return, I've learned so much from both projects and met really interesting people. And with RFK UK, I didn't actually know all the stories about Bobby Kennedy, nor did I know the depth of who he was and the impact he had on society very widely, historically. And I think I've learned a huge amount. Before I met Terry Kennedy, his daughter, I was in my office and I thought, well, I'll Google, you know, as you do. And I watched Bobby Kennedy made a speech in South Africa, a very famous speech where he talks about ripples of hope. And this is a true story. Everybody in my office, as I was playing it, I was literally watching it for sort of five minutes before I ran off to dinner. I had a kind of open plan office and, you know, my EA and the rest of the team sort of all around, but with enough space that we were kind of two or three metres apart. By the end of that speech, they had all walked and stood behind my desk and nobody had said a word as they watched that speech so I would definitely recommend listening to that because it's certainly inspirational and then I went on to meet the family and honoured to sit on their board but I don't know how much value I bring to boards I hope I do because I sit on a few of them but what I do know is that you definitely get something out of it in many different guises that you can then apply to as you say my main day job which is perks and whether it's learning about corporate structuring in some of the other non-exec roles or whether it's learning about diversity and inclusion and you just learn a huge amount so very great I feel very honoured and very lucky to even be able to add those underneath my name. I think it's brilliant isn't it I did 10 years as a trustee at St Luke's Hospice here in Plymouth and seven years as chair. And when I left, they made lovely fuss and said some really lovely things. But I wasn't trying to be humble. I said, genuinely, I got far more out of it than I put in, far more. And I would recommend anyone being an NED of any sort of charitable organisation. You learn a lot, you meet people, you're doing some good. It's a wonderful thing. Yeah, it feels rewarding, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. I think in my job, I think we get up and we do a good thing. You know, my whole point is, can I repurpose technology to make stuff that makes a positive difference? Mm. affordable so that more people can get it i think you know while perks is definitively not a charity it's a business but i think there's a new world and a new wave where you know if we can do something i kind of buy into the whole purpose-led business and Mm. even if that's just in terms of the culture and values that you have for your teams and the people
people, your suppliers, everybody around you that make up your business. I think this kind of purpose-led, being nice, being kind, while still being very commercial, I think that's going to deliver far more, even more so almost amplified by the pandemic and the new way we've had to interact with each other and deal with each other. 100%. For 2022, I've set our chamber priorities as people, planet, purpose. And purpose-led businesses that are doing good, making a good social impact, they are the ones that will be successful. So I couldn't agree more. I could talk to you for hours. I'm going to have to come up to Covent Garden and the Crusting Pipe, one of my favourite places, and we'll have a drink and dinner and what have you. But look, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for your time. I'm really grateful. And good luck with Perks. We will, of course, continue to support you. And you're welcome down here in the best part of the country to live any time you like. I'd love to come and actually meet some of the chamber members that have joined perks because of course it's been the pandemic and we've been doing everything remotely so i would love to come and visit and also we've got that Moldavian trip that we're planning to do. yeah it's on tape now that's it it's recorded it's gonna happen <laughs> just let me know when and i'm there fantastic all right thank you ever so much stella smith in conversation with is produced by fresh air studios full audio production services for podcasts live links and corporate communications visit freshairstudios.com presented by Stuart elford Produced and engineered by Paul Philpott. Edited and mixed by Martin Burgess-Moon. Production support by Lisa Hartwell. Copyright Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce and Fresh Air Studios Limited. All rights reserved.